Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human. This is a search for people who are working in real time to build sustainable futures, restore solidarity, or simply discover and celebrate the mystery of human existence. We deserve a place in the order of things, but we're at great risk of surrendering that privilege to the markets, technologies, and mindsets we've been using to make our lives apparently more safe and predictable. Life is neither safe nor predictable. It's weird, strange, dangerous, and wonderful. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. I'm asking you to join me on this quest to find the others, to rebuild society in a way that promotes our collective agenda, and to listen in on my lifelong research project to collect and connect the strategies we need to structure our world on principles of empathy instead of personal profit. Playing for Team Human today, technology and social media scholar, founder of Data and Society Research Institute, and my lifelong friend, Dana Boyd. We're in this odd moment with social media where we have the technical ability to see into the lives of so many more, but we don't have the social muscles, if you will, of how to do that, how to actively look, how to actively hear. Dana will be showing us how the intellectual's great quest to deconstruct pretty much everything may have backfired in an age of Trump. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. One of the perks of supporting Team Human, which you can do at teamhuman.fm, is access to the community speak pipe, through which teammates can pose questions for our premium shows or whole monologues. Here's our first one from Matthew Adikman, an audio producer whose work I've been listening to online. And he asks the following question. Our lawmaking system was designed far before Freud, let alone contemporary psychology. We now have a vastly better understanding of how humans feel, think, act, and interact with neuroscience to back it up. Humanity is ineffable, but we know infinitely more now than the framers. What would a humane lawmaking system 
unconstrained by old networks and informed by our newfound understanding of the humans we build the system around look like? It's an interesting question. And I, the first thing I think of is, is were the, the laws, uh, system of laws and government that we developed before Freud and contemporary psychology, uh, did that make them better or worse than if they were informed by Freud and contemporary psychology. I mean, a lot of what we're living with today are systems that were put in place because of Freud and because of of what we knew, at least by the 30s, 40s, and 50s, about contemporary psychology and the system of laws that were developed maybe by the by the ancient Hebrews in the in the mythological desert between Egypt and Canaan. Uh, some of those laws at least were developed with human benefit in mind, uh, as opposed to some other things. Uh, it, it's a very interesting question to look at the, the interplay and interaction of uh, psychological theory and theories of mind and human behavior with laws and with government. There was a, uh, a book written in the late 1800s by Laban that, that understood uh, people and particularly people in a crowd, as really, really dangerous. You know, this, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it was called The Crowd, which is about really mob behavior and how when, when people are together and this, this, they're getting self-reinforcing feedback loops and they lose their individual minds, they lose their rationality and be, begin behaving as this big irrational mob. And of course, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany or what happened in the uh, the in World War One, were all used as evidence of this is what happens when the human spirit is just unleashed and uncontrolled. It's what Freud was really writing about that we have this uh, subconscious and that we can't even really know, but is driving so many of our behaviors, and it's uh, it's it's so primal and and potentially dangerous. And the people who try to develop uh, legal systems out of that really were concerned that human psychology was just not up to the task of allowing us to make informed, rational decisions about our world. Woodrow Wilson ran for president on a peace platform and quickly realized he needed to or thought he had to get America involved in World War One, so he hired Walter Lippmann, the the originator of public relations, to convince America to fight that war. And Walter Lippmann was a progressive. He was not, you know, as he's been painted, he was not this uh, 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 extreme, you know, conservative who didn't like people. He did like people, but he was concerned that human beings are not intelligent or informed enough to make appropriate decision, that we're all just uh, seeing pictures in our heads. He kept talking about, you know, the, the Plato's cave uh, analogy to say that human beings don't really see reality. We just see these pictures in our heads and different voices, uh, different forms of media might tell us different things about what's going on. And he thought that the way government should work is that there should be a council of experts who 
work in a building somewhere in Washington, D.C., real scientists and economists who then tell government what to do, and then government hires public relations people to convince the public that those are the right things. So at least at the beginning, when people were looking at Freud and looking at psychology, it didn't uh, create a more uh, enlightened view of uh collective participation in government, but actually an almost anti-democratic fear of what people would do. And that continued right through World War II. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had hired Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson. They were anthropologists who also knew a lot about psychology. And all three of them were really concerned what was going to happen when World War II veterans, when they came back from the war with they didn't know to call it PTSD, but traumatized and upset. They developed the New Deal and the GI Bill and things like that really to create a place and a structure for people. And that went right through even, you know, Eisenhower, when he was uh, working with the Levitt brothers on building Levittown. The idea was to use the theories of Freud about the way people are beholden to their inner animals to their their animal-like psyche, that what they should do is stoke desires, stoke that animal desire in people, and then satisfy those desires. But don't do it on a large scale. Just do it um, to each individual. Like, oh, you want a bigger house, or you want a better car. And then create a system where they can get a job, which then gives them more money, which then allows them to buy a bigger car. And it worked economically. They didn't know about environmental problems, but it worked in Environmentally, because as people work more and earn more money, then they can spend more money, and then there's more jobs for more people, and it would promote the economy. And that carried right through to today, this idea that human psychology is something to be exploited or leveraged by those who seek to create the structures to maintain peace or to maintain the economy. So today it's behavioral finance. It's an, an applied form of psychology that looks at the market. And well, how do people look at interest rates? How do people look at savings? And how can we leverage those to make more money from people? So we know that people are, are more averse to losing money than they are about gaining money, or people look at money in the future as smaller than money in the present, and we can develop banking products and credit card products and and sales and, uh, and an entire uh, language of commerce around that psychology. And then that carried over into the digital age is what we call behavior design. It's what B.J. Fogg teaches at Stanford in his courses in captology. So again, we're creating a landscape that leverages what we know about psychology to extract value from people. Now, what would a more humane lawmaking system look like? One that's more focused on, on human potential and, and widespread prosperity? Well, I think it would have to move beyond the psychology of the individual. Part of Freud's problem was that his psychology and his psychological models were all based on the individual or the individual within the individual, the subconscious, this, this, uh, this unconscious individual that we can't even really know. And then his work was about conforming the individual to society. Even his daughter, Anna Freud, was even more so. So the idea was that if you have a problem, it's because you need to adjust who you are in order to fit in to your family or fit in to the greater society. 
eventually that became the pharmaceutical industry, which looks to drug people who are having a problem or reacting to something in society, where as I believe anyway, a lot of these people who are having these problems are the canaries in the coal mine. They are responding appropriately to systems of injustice that are embedded in our world. It's not they who are the crazy ones, it's they who are the sane ones responding to a society that's crazy. But more importantly, it's that psychology is itself a collective phenomenon. I don't even really know how much of a thing there is of individual psychotherapy. In the end, it's all family therapy. It's all collective therapy. Similarly, with policy and with law, if we were to reframe them in a modern context, you know, we might we might use the modern psychological context of uh, of of polyvagal theory, of collective awareness, of of networked consciousness. So then we would look less at the rights of individuals to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and correspondingly to the the collective interest as something to be balanced against those individual liberties. So instead of understanding life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as individual ideals, they become collective ideals. There's no such thing as individual liberty or individual psychology because we are part of a networked being. That's what the latest psychology is telling us. So what would a human lawmaking system look like with that as the presumption of humanity? Well, I guess if we started with our common interest as a given and the individual liberty as a result of effective solidarity rather than the prerequisite, then we might stand a chance of designing a set of laws and policies up to the task of supporting the next iteration of Team Human. I'm Melissa Court, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Barbara, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Caroline Jack, and I'm on Team Human. This week, my journey to make sense of digital society and to challenge my own underlying assumptions about the promise and peril of social media, I visited my good friend Dana Boyd, We met up at the Data and Society Research Institute, which she founded in 2014, to explore the social and cultural issues arising from data-centric and automated technologies. But what makes her work unique, at least to me, is that it's based less on thought experiments than on observations from the real world. That's part of why I waited until Dana could make time for an in-person discussion which we had in a little meeting space at the always busy Data and Society office in Chelsea, Manhattan. I remember when I first uh, started to hear about you and your work, you were a a child, um, (laughs) practically. But you were like, I mean, I I remember me and um, Clay Shirky were really excited that here's this person coming up at, you were at Berkeley, I think, getting a PhD and God knows what it would be called information. There. Information <laughs> there, and you were you were doing this work on, um, as I understood it, racial and socioeconomic diversity in social media universe, and we were like, oh my gosh, both of us were like, here is a person doing the kind of stuff we do, 
except with rigor. You know, <laughs> actually researching the numbers and going out and doing research. Because for us, there wasn't, it didn't seem anyway in our era, like there was a way to really do research other than just kind of poke around and come up with theories. And you were like, no, 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 there is a way to look at these spaces using real, real, uh, the, the sociological tools really at, at that point. And I'm interested in that work in, in what you found and how that, how that work kind of formed your, your way of thinking about, about the net and young people and the economy. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like you, you know, I spent some formative years in, you know, tools that we now talk about as social media. It was not called then at the same time. I mean, Usenet, you remember. And a huge chunk of my research was born out of this desire to get outside of my little microcosm and say, how does this fit into a whole broader ecosystem? What is going to play out? Where is this going to unfold? And uh, in the process, I quickly sort of realized that, you know, every complexity of, of humanity was going to converge and clash into each other in different ways through these you know, network technologies and that we needed to understand it. In the early days of social media, I was drawing on a whole variety of different methodological tools. You know, one of the things that people don't remember about MySpace is that the original architecture of that system had user IDs that were, um, you know, one after the other. So first user ID was one, second user ID was two. And every day I could go on and I could look and say, what was the latest user ID that was created? You know, you know, 4,732,612. Um, and I could randomly sample across all of that, right? Which is, you know, a classically simple mm-hmm. tool, but it allowed for a way of seeing that uh, forced me to get outside of my own microcosm. And, you know, I took originally a lot of those sampling techniques and then a lot of it was thinking about, you know, ethnographic methods, the ability to really try to map cultural practice and the intersection of what we would see digitally and what we would see in person. And that, of course, led me to run around this country. And I've I've had the um, privilege of spending time in 50 of the United States and really being able to you know, see how people's worlds, their their material realities were intersecting with these digital experiences. There was so much hype at the time uh, that I was like, it's not going to play out at that level of hype. And then the fear came and I'm like, it's also not going to be as scary as you think it's going to be. It's going to be much messier and much different. And so part of my joy as a scholar has been to take certain threads and follow them through. And let me talk about two divergent threads in, in light of your original question. You know, I, when I came to New York, I wanted to follow up on some of the work that Alice Marwick and I had done on privacy. And we were curious, what would young, upwardly mobile, but low income, low status, often kids of color, how would they be using these new technologies in light of upward mobility? And I'll never forget an interview that uh, I did and another one that Alice did and this, that we sort of came together on. This young man had worked out that um, he could hack into revenge porn sites and remove images from revenge porn sites. And he had created this small business to sell this service to you know various folks in his neighborhood for $50 a pop. And he sat there and was like, I mean, I guess if you're rich, you can like lawyer up and pay $30,000 to get these images to go away. But we don't have that option. So, you know, 
they taught us CS classes, so we figured out how to hack. And I was sitting there, you know, my mind blown because here's this young man who took a look at the possibility of learning computer science in a, in a culture of CS for all, didn't see this as a pathway out of his neighborhood in the way that would be privileged rhetoric. Right. Saw it as a way of actually doubling down in his community and building out tools, and in his case, a small business, um, for to help the people within his community. And therefore, he was engaging in something that was extraordinarily illegal, extraordinarily against everybody's mindset, responding to a culture of harassment and toxic masculinity in a way that was totally locally sensible. But it's also, on the one hand, it harkens back to almost like a Soviet style, how to hack the system to get an extra bar of soap, or forward to like a minority report kind of post-apocalyptic world where you go to the, the you know, black market guy to get your new eyeball. Yeah, and he, I think, I don't even know that he thought about it at that level. It was just the basics of living there. And I think that part of what we have to remember when we see people using technology is that they don't come along on our world. They live within their world and those technologies get negotiated within their world. They don't think about it in more grandiose forms. They think of it in just practical what it takes. And that dynamic of scale is one of the hardest pieces to navigate mm. there, which is that through these technologies, we may be able to look out at millions and millions of people. And we can create automated technologies to interpolate across them, to sell them, sell them products or do any number of things that you can imagine. But from people that are living within these worlds, they're living within their own local worlds where these technologies are just part of it. Right. And the different and, and the same technology is going to affect different people in different places in different ways. Absolutely. And that's sort of what I think surprised so many, like even in this last election cycle, surprised so many people. They're like, oh, well, social media is going to do this to everyone. And it's like, well, no, actually, social media did that to these people, you know, or or enabled yeah, different think, emotions, think, different ways of connecting. Right. And I think what I think of is um, this great commentary by Neil Stevenson. He was struggling with the response. I don't remember if it was for Snow Crash or another one of his books. And he was getting an onslaught of, of email. It was the early days of email to like asking him, engaging with him, you know, fan letters, love letters, and all this stuff. And at one point, Stevenson wrote back and said, I think you need to understand that you may take me on vacation, but I don't take you on vacation. This is my work, right? And that's this unevenness. And the reason that it comes back to this challenge of, what it means to deal with, you know, things like the election or what was going on or how these technologies. Our news media is what narrates to the public what is general. Our entertainment sector is what narrates to the world what is general. But the more and more divorced that those systems of broad explanation are, the more everything becomes topsy-turvy and strange. And so when you sit down in some of these communities in the United States and ask people about their world, their information, how they see what's around them, it's not just that they see it through their own personal networks and social media or what they might get when they're in church or what they get from their neighbors. It's that because of a whole set of restructuring of America, they just don't see the worlds that are outside of theirs. Um, and that includes us. 
right? You may wake up every day and read the Times, but that doesn't give you visibility into huge swaths of this country. And so this we're in this odd moment with social media where we have the technical ability to see into the lives of so many more, but we don't have the social muscles, if you will, of how to do that, how to actively look, how to actively hear. And so it's this strange moment of this new connective technology where we're just massively confused about what we're seeing, who we're seeing. And we keep thinking that we just have to look in a different place rather than step back and think more methodologically in the same way that we get back to where we started. Right. But the tools themselves, I mean, and this has part of been my whole critique for the last decade or so, is that the tools themselves are so biased towards certain kinds of extraction, towards treating people as consumers, towards, you know, steering their behaviors, that it, it, it's not just not a level playing field. It's not, uh, it feels like it's not even an appropriate tool or an appropriate lens at this point. I think it depends on what your definition of appropriate is or what you really want out of these systems. These systems are part of a particular contemporary version of capitalism that is designed to give people what they want. What they want as individuals may not be, even in the short term, may not be what they want long term. So let me, let's go away from the politics for a second and, and give an example that's more concrete. So Netflix ran a competition years ago where they wanted to get computer scientists to help create better algorithms. Right. And they opened up their API and said, you know, here's all of what people are watching and, and, and consuming, help make a recommendation. Now, they received this recommendation at a very critical juncture in their business transitions. Netflix originally was a DVD service. It sent out DVDs based on what was at the top of your queue. And then they transitioned to being something where you could consume on the fly digitally. The recommendation data and the recommendation information was based on those DVD consumptions, that queue and what you watched. Well, a typical user of Netflix put in the queue the things they thought they wanted to watch in an idealized version of themselves. And so then they'd get a DVD of 12 Years a Slave. Be like, not tonight. Just like, no, I can't do it tonight. Maybe tomorrow. And they'd hold it for two weeks. And before they'd send it back to Netflix, having finally watched it. Well, when Netflix changed the equation, said you can watch whatever you want right now, 12 Years a Slave was still in the queue. But, you know, RuPaul was yeah. much more interesting right now. And that's where this interesting challenge comes to what is humanity, which is where I think it connects very deeply to your work, which is that we want pleasure. We want the things that sort of, you know, gluttonously feel delightful in the moment. Even when our longer term selves are like, please don't do that. Please don't do that. You should actually, you know, be more thoughtful. And this is something that we've had to experience on in many facets of what humanity looks like right now, right? The availability of sugar is not something that our evolutionary biology has caught up with. Right. Give me sugar, I want it. And what right, we, and on a macro level, it's give me oil, I want that. And, and, a, digital, and a digital level, it's like give me the next little nugget that makes me feel good. Right. Give me the little Instagram comment that tells me I'm pretty. Right, whatever that next piece is. And the difficulty is that, you know, a corporation in a return on investment style capitalistic enterprise is going to give you what you want. 
And it's not going to be designed to be paternalistic because if it's designed to be paternalistic, not only is that against the legal structures of how capitalism works right now, but it's also against every idea within the idea of the market will work it out. And that's where there's a broader you know, issue of humanity right now of like, what are the right checks and balances? Right. What does paternalism look like in a networked age in a way that is non-offensive? I mean, and I don't think we've even begun right. to grapple with that. Right. But but you're not saying that the answer is, well, if if these machines are going to give us what we want, or then we just have to help people want better stuff. It's not quite as easy as that. I don't think that ever works. I right. think that's I mean, I think that's just naive. But I mean, there's, but there's, not that we have to solve the problem of civilization in this particular moment, although we kind of, it's getting, it's getting a little late. <laughs> We're both looking at our, our fake watches, but um, how do we, how, I mean, so, so one approach, I mean, and I've written books on this has been to argue for why it's more valuable to a corporation to take a longer timeline, which you can, which can be argued, you know, if, if they move towards long-term sustainability, it's actually better for their shareholders in the long run. Think about themselves like a family business rather than just, you know, kicking up their stock price. If, if they're less concerned with your next decision and more concerned with keeping you for a decade, they're going to make different sorts of decisions about how they influence you that, and they're going to make different offerings. Maybe. I think part of where I struggle with it is that one, that's not how, I mean, capitalism has changed tremendously over the 20th century. The version of capitalism that we have right now is is quarter by quarter at best. Right. And so I say this is that, you know, it's not that you have the same investors that are there 10 years from now. And so when you have an investor strategy that has a long-term concept, then we can have that conversation. But that's not how we've perverted this version of capitalism. Right. right. So that's, Any kind of publicly traded company, you're, you're that's where it's like, into okay. your moment-to-moment -moment share price is all right. that matters. The other thing is, is that we're operating in a global environment. And one of the things that both capitalism and democracy are challenged by in a global dynamic is that you aren't just pushing to what is sustainable or sensible within a bounded environment of a nation state, of a geography. You're doing it across all of these different cultural configurations. And that's where I struggle about, like, what does it mean? Let's just take Facebook as an example because it's the one that's easiest to pick on these days. What does it mean to regulate, and I mean it with lower R, regulate, just what does it mean to govern or regulate Facebook? Mm -hmm. Who whose values determine that? So like a classic example that I always bring up within content moderation questions is that if you wanted the whole demos of a Facebook to say, you know, these are the, the content that we deem acceptable, one of the first things to go is LGBT content. The majority of Facebook's users around the world are not in favor of LGBT content. I happen to be very okay with Facebook's stance to be very paternalistic and say, we're not blocking that content. But that is a values-oriented stance from a capitalist company that has actually done it with not just capitalism in mind. That's where you see a certain kind of Western paternalism at play. So then how do we start navigating the boundaries of this? Because we do see these things unfolding. They have made certain right. values choices. Right. And it's those very, I mean, and and- it's it's honest to call it paternalistic to say that equal rights is itself paternalistic if it's something that needs to be enforced. But we we're starting to see the resistance to that from people who are like, well, no, wait a minute, this is 
and that's the rise of this current version of you know populism, right. which is not populism, but we can pretend it's populism. But it's part of these resistance. And this is where, you know, when I think about some of the content battles we have, you know, there is a perversion of the, you know, freedom of speech that has been going on within the tech sector for quite some time. First, there's an ahistoric element. Let's acknowledge that the First Amendment in the United States was about making certain that uh, white Christian male landowners had the ability to speak about political issues in public, regardless of their particular sub-branch of Christianity, right? That's right. what freedom of speech meant, um, and that they would have the ability to speak out without actually facing governmental punishment, as in jail. So that's where we'd start with from a historical point of view. So the idea that we can even talk about all the people is an interesting question of who are all the people that get to have the right to speak. The next question is, is like, what is the work of words, right? Words actually do work, as we've known for quite some time. You get married through words. You sign contracts through words. You can cause harm to people through words, right? And there's all of these ways in which words do work. Um, that is also really tricky because when we talk about it as just, you know, negotiating out political discourse is very different than, right. you know, harassment, cruelty, etc. And then we have to ask the question of what does it mean for these companies who are in the business of amplification? Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that all media companies are in the business of amplification, whether we're talking about CNN or whether we're talking about Facebook. They all curate and decide what gets amplified. And for the longest of times, the tools for amplification were available to very few people. And you and I lived through an environment yeah. of like, let's all have the tools of amplification. This will be great. Right. And then you sit back and go, mm, maybe not so much. And where we're at right now is that if anybody has the tool of amplification, but there are certain gatekeepers who can amplify more, what are the responsibilities of those gatekeepers, right. where CNN and Facebook are both potential gatekeepers? And that's where I think we've gotten this huge challenge, because at this moment in time, there's a slippage between the right to speak and the right to be amplified that I think is irresponsible. Because just because you can speak doesn't mean you deserve or have rights to an audience, and it doesn't mean you deserve or have rights to silence other people through your speech. Right. And that's where like, this is only within a you know a very American centric point of view. How then do we talk about speech around the world, right? And all of that is colliding into these environments, which create this phenomenal governance challenge. It is, and a business challenge. So you get a company like Facebook that thought, well, look, if we just provide the servers and let people have their conversations, this is going to be a good business. You know, the minute they have to start reading everything everybody's writing and judging it as to whether or not it's appropriate for uh, as speech. Except I would say that it didn't begin within a business frame. And I think that's part of what's important, you know, especially for those of us who spent our years building blogging platforms and whatnot. You know, think back to 2002 when we were all talking about social software, right? When the only remaining companies from round one were eBay and Amazon, right? Where our only understanding of a viable economic model on the internet was going to be either commerce, online dating, or gaming, right? Like those were the only right. thoughts. The idea of community being monetizable was completely alien. And I say this because I think that these platforms were birthed out of a very naive understanding that it would just benefit everybody, kumbaya, to bring them together and let them speak. 
And then the servers started costing money. And then it became this conversation of what is the sustainable business model? And part of what I think is tricky in the tech sector is that we started to see these slips. So it's not that it was like we woke up one day and created a business, which I would argue Uber did. It's more you have the boys at Google having created a PhD you know, essay saying, we think ads are evil. We're going to build a better search engine. And then how did they get from that point to the to biggest s- advertising company in the world? Well, right. step one, to deciding to steal an ad technology. Right. Right. They stole an ad technology for which they went to court and had to pay. And that's what sustained Yahoo. They stole an ad technology in order to sustain their business. How and why? And then where do we go from there? And I say this because I don't think that any of these major social media platforms that we're seeing today started from a business-centric point of view. Right. It's a matter of what were each of those micro decisions that slipped. Well, for a lot of them, it was this, and, and this is a different conversation, but it was the decision to take money from the wrong people. You know, Maybe. once you took the Sequoia money and they had to grow, I mean, they didn't want to grow organically or but they think, didn't know from growing organically. Part of the beauty and challenge of it is, is that it's not any one big decision like that. You know, it's like, who were also the Sequoia people? It wasn't always the partners that they were engaging with, right? It was so, sort of lower level people. So like, what are all of these mm-hmm. little pieces? And that's where, you know, I spent... Uh, 2016, I decided to go back and read um, Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt. Uh, I assume you're Mm -hmm. familiar with this. And, you know, it's popularly referred to as the banality of evil. And part of what I find so, I mean, eloquent about Arendt's writing, which is just that book is this thick description of every little detail of mundane decision making where you you zoom out 3,000 feet and you're like, holy shit, this is the architecture of the Holocaust. And then you zoom back in and it's like, but each of those decisions seemed so reasonable at the time. And trying to keep that in my mind, the reason is because it's not just about how we reckon with what's going on right now. It's about how do we move forward? And as we move forward, we're also making tons of small little decisions that will add up in ways that we can't expect. And I think we have to own that and grapple with that and realize that the process of making history is a process of revisiting and restruggling with decisions that were well-intended that collectively allowed this other path. Right. Or systemically. I mean, and that's the other problem is that, you know, the in a digital age, our actions are amplified as well in ways that we didn't realize. You know, people, I mean, maybe people are aware now that when you buy a smartphone, you're impacting labor. You're impacting kids in Africa or whoever has to go find the rare earth metals. You know that there are these that there's this life cycle on this product. There where so much of it's externalized. You know, and as you become aware of that, though, it becomes it becomes kind of paralyzing. You know what you would call the fear cycle um, begins on a certain level where it's like, well, what can I even do that's not contributing to, you know, death and mayhem and pain and. You know, I think that there's two responses to it, right? You double down on like just the local, like I mean. Which is what I've been doing, trying to think, okay, stay as local as possible, you know, make some media that's modeled out there, but don't go for, you know, huge system-wide experience. But I think that's that's also, I mean, this is where, you know, I don't think that there's ever been a time in history where we've ever, where we haven't grappled with this in some way or another. It just unfurls in different ways, depending on the different cycle. And I think right now, you know, 
we have true existential crises, whether we want to talk about climate or whether how, where we are in the nuclear conversation. We have true like, huh, we can wipe out humanity in some short or medium term. Uh, and how do our decisions play into that process, whether they are governing decisions or whether they are, you know, using up, um, uh, you know, rare resources. And then we have, you know, all of the theoretical conceptual values, things that we've built up over time, like take something like democracy, right? One of my constant challenges in all of this is given what we know about democracy, is it possible for democracy to address climate in the speed in which we have to? How do we actually weigh out these dynamics? And what does it mean to take a very paternalistic approach to this? And a democratic approach to governance is not the only form of global governance. It's not the only form of control of technology. Right? And so where does technology come to this equation? And that goes back to your, your earlier point, which is, you know, uh, you're teaching now. And one of my favorite things about teaching, especially a data science um, course, is that you'll say to students, you're like, you know, can you spin up a machine for me? And they're like, oh, sure. And then, you know, they log into their, you know, system in AWS and they spin up a machine. And I'm like, so what did you do? And they'll, they'll walk you through the interface. I'm like, no, no, what did you do? What was the physical work of what you did? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, you spun up a machine. That machine is manufactured through a whole set of technologies that you have just imprinted on this through clicking on a bunch of things on an interface. And they look at you with this shock. Because even though the phrase is spin up a machine, the idea that they have actually powered up a physical piece of hardware is so far removed from reality. Right? And that's something fascinating about what does abstraction do? And whether that abstraction is governance, whether that abstraction is your technical system, whether that abstraction is the way in which we negotiate status, and how do we pierce all of these abstractions that allow us to function, you know, psychologically and socially. Right. Well, the abstractions, I mean, another way of saying of their, their myths or narratives or dead metaphors in many cases. You know, even when we say time is running out, nobody realizes, right, that was an hourglass and the sand was running through the thing and we forget what we're referring to. I mean, in, in 1994, I did this piece for... It was just started then. Upside Magazine, remember them? Yeah. And it was called something like the physicality of the internet. And it was just trying to say, what happens when you turn on your, when you dial a modem? Where is it going? What, what's going on in the world? And everybody, it was like one of my most successful pieces at the time because everybody was like, oh my God. It was the same sort of realization that you're talking about, that you're impacting the physical universe. That that in some sense, Negroponte was wrong. It's not like there's atoms and bits. It's like, Atoms are bits and bits are atoms. and Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, Ingrid Burrington has done just phenomenal work. One of my favorite things she does in New York is she takes people on tours of infrastructure. Right? We live in New York City where, you know, there is so much going on that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, invisible. And what does it mean to actively make that visible? To look down on the ground and see what all those markings are and to realize the layers upon layers that are sitting below our city streets. And it's not just the subway that's down there. It's not just the sewer pipes that are down there. It's all of this infrastructure. And that moment of realizing that we have built and then let you know, erode all of this infrastructure that we depend on. And I think that's this funny moment of why then I look back to these technology companies, because we're at a moment where we have reached hyper-individualism, 
right? It is all about you and your happiness and, you know, what you want for these technologies and such hyper-connectedness, which is that, you know, when there's a, you know, explosion of a, a, a of a steam pipe in the middle of Manhattan, it's like you realize all of the ways in which we are connected and you're like, oh gosh, how much is it dependent on? And so that's the strange dualism of the present right now, which is that, you know, the technology is pushing us and inviting us to be about ourselves and be about the individual. But at the same time, it's built out all of the mechanisms for us to be so interdependent. And how do we live with both simultaneously? And it's tricky. I mean, and partly I, I feel like the individualism is just the hangover from the 20th century of marketing, you know, that sort of individualism that was invented in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to get us to buy more stuff. And that's ending up sort of, it's not really consonant with the way a network culture would work. So even, I mean, individualism changes from my youth. It was how many records can I collect? How many records do I have? Versus individualism in a Pandora age might be how well does the algorithm get me? You know, and that's well. And capitalism is funny on that front because you know so much of 1950s capitalism was designed to interconnect the globe because um, it was a response to World War II. Right. right. If we make the globe financially interdependent, it'll be peaceful. It'll be peaceful. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it, was a, it was. It was a nice theory. And we'll get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Really nice theory. Um, you know, which of course did not play out that way. But that's where I think there's this funny moment where it's like we we saw that dualism in the 20th century, right? We saw that, um, you know, idea of it could just be about, you know, the markets would connect us and we could individually get what we wanted consumer-wise. Right. And for for listeners, this is not conspiracy theory. This is this is just how, what – this is what Rockefeller and the CIA and internationalism and the World Bank – this is what it was went, yeah. for. This was basic, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, international diplomacy 101 that we would create, you know, both through Bretton Woods and, and economics and through through NATO. And it, it, it would just – one beautiful world. It kind of peaked in, you know, 1968 with the, the first picture of Earth from space, the world's a big blue marble, which I think – was an IBM uh, Big Blue originally. I think it came from them, but uh, it it wasn't cynical. It no, was it was hopeful, right? It, I mean, on like, and in some ways, Clinton, like Hillary, was like almost the last gasp of that. Well, and that's vision. the strange thing is that the cap the version of capitalism in the 20th century shifted radically in the 1970s, and this is the work of Carolyn Jack, and she pointed out the various moves that were were done to make what is neoliberal capitalism as we see it. She was on this show, um, and she's a, a fellow of the yeah, she's, institute. She's phenomenal, and she so a huge chunk of her point was that like we shifted capitalism at different periods of time without realizing it, and we think that we're still living in a version of 1950s hopeful capitalism mm -hmm. and that we haven't been for quite some time um, and that makes it also even hard for the public to discuss because it's like capitalism seems like a very good religion to subscribe to um, and also the same shift has happened at you know the making of consumption our consumption of you know the 50s was about material consumption and it's not that we have left behind materiality but this version of digital consumption that we're living in right now is that status is made through, you know, how you are seen on Instagram as opposed to whether or not you've got the right Nikes. Um, and that shift means that it's so about 
you know, this, this data ecosystem, because it's about who you're connected to, but you at the center of that universe. And that's a strange version of this, because it means that all of this data that is being done to give you what you want is entirely dependent on the analysis of your connective tissue to everyone else. And that's where you get these strange moments. So at the same time that we're building, you know, technology so that you don't have to rely on public transportation, you can go and and get your own car whenever, wherever, no problem, um, are all done based on a set of predictive analytics of humans as a whole. And I think back to that, the, the strange shift that happened in the 1940s as well around survey research. So there's a, a woman named Sarah Igo, and she wrote this book called The Averaged American, where she wanted to understand why American, uh, you know, statistical work emerged in a way that, you know, was unparalleled anywhere else in the world. So we did polling and marketing research long before anybody else. And she takes three case studies um, from the 20th century. The first is um, about Muncie, Indiana, and it's called the Middletown Studies. And it's about literally what is the average American. The second is the Gallup Studies, which, of course, is the history of the Gallup polling system. And the third are the Kinsey Studies, which is the understanding of sexuality. And one of the things that she uncovered in in this process was the way in which the making of identity required understanding who you were in relationship to the rest of America, okay? And so that you were willing to participate in all of these surveys and all of the survey research because you wanted to be understand your relationship to the rest of America. And in order to understand America, you had to be present. You had to be counted. You had to be made real. And of course, we've had long histories of being counted in America, the census, et cetera. But there's something fascinating in the 20th century where we became obsessed with seeing who we were in relationship to everyone else. And where we are on each of the different bell curves out there. Absolutely. Now, this has also completely come undone in the last 10 years. Why are our polls broken? Our polls are broken because the mass majority of people don't see themselves as a data project in a positive sense. They want to resist being understood or seen within a data project. Because then you get reduced down to some... Stat. We can see all the positive and all the negative from it, right? And but more importantly, we have a uneven non-participation in these graphs. So think about it this way: if you look at the polling information on election night, maybe we'll talk about the uh, the polling during the primaries um, in Bronx and Queens in New York, which is um, we have this up-and-coming young woman, you know, sort of rabble rouser, um, you know, running for a house seat against a very long-standing, you know, well-established Democrat. And the polls were very clear that he was going to win by, you know, some significant margin. Um, And she ends up winning by an even more overwhelming margin. The distance between the polls and reality was 51 points. Why? With a margin of error of three. It's hard, you know, the margin of errors at this point have also expanded. But still, like, you're at a level of, like, what's going on here? And the issue is that when you are not sampling right, we're back to methodology, when you're not sampling right, you can't do representative information. And sampling is not so simple as your demographics. Did I make certain to sample the right number of uh, black and African-American individuals in this particular jurisdiction, Um, you know, weighted to census data? That's not as relevant as graph structure. And that's one of the other ways in which we are actually at this strange moment where we have the techniques of seeing. Who gets to access those techniques of seeing is complicated. This goes back to your your critique of these technology companies. But our ability to understand ourselves within these networks is 
actually extraordinarily difficult. We don't see it. And then we have all this statistical data that we used to understand as our ways of seeing that's completely irrelevant now. And that's where we have this you know, complicated idea of what does it mean to be a part of a collective? We're no longer a part of a collective. We're part of networks. And those network graphs actually matter. And we have not caught up in our ways of thinking, in our ways of like representation, in our ways of thinking about governance across networks, in our ways of thinking about how we model or understand people across networks. And that's ironic that the people who are most advanced of this, of course, are the ad agencies. They understand the graphs in ways that none of us do. Right. But most of them are creating faux collectives for, you know, brand purposes. And what I'm trying to do, I mean, Team Human, obviously, is an effort to try to retrieve some of that collective spirit. I mean, is that is that futile? Should we be thinking of it in a different way? I mean, I think you should be thinking about it in a graph way, not in a community way. So, like, think about it this way. We reduced down to groups because it was actually the easiest thing to model historically, right? You were on the basketball team or you were not on the basketball team. That's a lot easier to understand. It is a lot harder to understand how someone sits within a graph. And we would talk about it colloquially, like my friends are not the same as your friends. We have an overlap of friends. Some friends are in common, but we each understand this collective narrative of friends where each of us sit separately from that. And our model of friends is different, right? And of course, Friendster and on, we started figuring out how to graph these friends. Part of what we need to reclaim is a way of understanding the world through graphs without getting to tribalism, right? Tribalism is the dangerous response to graphs, but it's a graph response. A nation state is a group orientation. It is not clear that as we've built all these technologies to enable and empower graphs, that our humanity will reside in reducing it down to groups, And that's the struggle that we're in the middle of with regard to even things like governance. You know, it's our immigration battles, right? What does it it mean to want to be with your family, with your closest peers when you're split across a border? What does it mean to think about your community for representation when some of your people are co-located geographically and some aren't? What things have to matter about physicality and what things matter about something else? Well, right, because the the affinity, I mean, digital technology tends toward the affinity over the co-location, right? It, so you'll find other, you know, 1974 Fiat owners who, you know, like alpacas, you know, and that's great. And you've got your little online group, but they're not the people on the street. They're not the ones walking by. Right. And that's where I think part of the complexity of understanding governance in the world through graph structure is you also see abuse through graph structure. So one of the most notable ways of, for example, harming people and the internet is to cross over from my graph to your graph and do damage in your graph, right? And then- I can basically trolling. I go into the comment section of a group of people I don't agree with and just make it hard for them to communicate with each other. And then your response, of course, is to then, or the response is to retreat, right? And segment. And we segment by graph, which is equally damaging because then we can't see another world's. Right. And so even though we're part of the same group, we're not part of the same graph. We've got these different complexities. So part of where I'm what I'm highlighting here is that there's a there is a mess underlying our current conversation because we've had a collision of group and graph in a really significant way through network technologies where all sorts of other things un, uh, unravel. Right. So like a language based graph is so much more powerful right, than where you are physically located. So if you speak, 
you know, uh, Farsi. Farsi. Let's go with Farsi. You know, you may be located in Iran. You may be located in different parts of Europe, in different parts of the U.S. There is a commonality to you that is very different than just about your physical location. And how do we start modeling that and thinking about governing across that? Because and that's what are where- the limits to that to to that graph association compared well, to a group association? I think. Part of the challenge is that those are not just identity and affinity, they're, they're values-oriented responses to things. So many of our biggest governance battles, you know, not just digitally, but sort of more generally, are rooted in values, right? How do you want uh, education to be managed? And then they have to be realized in physical spaces in different form. What does it mean that that school represents or doesn't represent you? And there's a certain population that has the you know, privilege of being able to move around in order to achieve those outcomes. Right. And if you talk to the real estate people today, this is the number one uh, factor in people deciding where to live is what the people around them believe. Correct. And so we self-segregate in all sorts of complicated ways. So then if you think about what it means, for example, of the project of the United States, the United States was never about a country where everybody was in agreement. It was the United States. So it was about distinct states with distinct cultures. It's no longer clear that the states are the major operating distinct cultures. So what does it mean to be united as a governing structure in a networked age that can actually make sense? And that's where, you know, I think where we're moving towards is is a series of different existential crises about governance, about democracy, about, you know... Boundary and nation state, identity, gender, I mean, you name it. These are... Every question becomes existential now because they're all sort of spun to the extreme. And the question is whether or not we can get through that without violence, right? And that's the the opening of people... Or with less violence, anyway. With, with, correct. Um, (laughs) There's always, unfortunately, violence um, in this world right now, but it's a question of whether or not the path forward is about escalating that violence or it's about finding a path forward that is actually sustainable or healthy. And I don't know the answer to that. And you've you've written some things over the years that have provoked me, you know, and that's a a good thing. And I I don't, I, I sometimes don't know whether I'm being provoked by the fact that the data simply contradicts what I'm hoping to be <laughs> or I mean which is fine it's fine to be upset Happens by to that me all the time. you know it's not what I this is not this data does not reflect my wishes for oh, the world trust me that happens to me all the time I'm like oh mm-hmm. right so it's un- unexpected but or is it is so like the the last one that got me upset was uh well obviously the media literacy one so you wrote this a great piece basically saying, arguing that in some sense, media literacy and all of the deconstruction and and uh, almost cynicism in, in implicit in it that we're teaching our kids, no, don't believe, don't trust, take it apart, look at that that in some sense is responsible for the untruthiness of of the world that we're in. And I mean, as you know, and you even, you, you, you said, look, I love Renee Hobbs. It's fine. Cause she's like a, a, awesome. A, a, an awesome media literacy educator, but you're also arguing that while this is great, it's also has this downside, but I was provoked thinking, well, wait a minute, we got to teach them to deconstruct, to see what are the, 
I mean, the thing I, I, I value most in my in the classes I do I do try to teach is how does reading this work not only reflect the underlying assumptions of the author, but how does it challenge your own underlying assumptions so that you can begin to question? So a couple of things. First, I don't think we should undo media literacy or, I mean, to the degree that it's been implemented. I think we should implement it. I think that we should move forward. I think this is part of what we believe in terms of education. I don't think that we should see it as a solution to a set of different media challenges right now. And that's where I struggle. Mm -hmm. So part of it is, is that, you know, we have to un recognize the fallibility of what it means to be engaged on an education project. And you and I can both say this as teachers, which is that you come into that classroom, like I come into that classroom, really hopeful that we can communicate something that we've seen or know to an audience um, or, you know, a group of students in, in a classroom. And we hope that they take away what we've tried to convey. And then inevitably we get the essay and we're like, whoa, you did not at all hear what I said or it went in a different direction. You're like, <laughs> that, no, that was not, that was not what I intended. And so those are like those little subtle moments. And I want to point this out because we start with the best of intention. And I believe every educator starts with the best of intention. I believe that education is far more of an art than a science. And that even with the best of intention, even with, you know, being equipped with tools on how to teach a really complex subject, the success of doing so as a single teacher is in a single classroom is low. Hopefully you have repetition, you have multiple voices telling you all the same things. You can sort of, you know, move around this. And this is what we know about things like social-emotional learning, right? You cannot get anywhere on social-emotional learning if the teacher in the classroom is teaching it and there's nothing uh, supporting it in the surrounding, right? Parents, for example, are a really critical component. So that, then let's look in some of these environments where we're dealing with already hostile contexts. And I'm particularly concerned about environments where, you know, the environment, the, the home environment, regardless of what the teachers feel or think, the home environment doesn't trust the news media, believes that, you know, or believes any number of conspiracy-related things, believes that the government is setting up a whole variety of things. So you're now trying to challenge parental messaging through an education approach that is okay at best. And what you end up doing is teaching people a set of techniques that they reincorporate in their home environment. Mm. And that's where we start to see hostile environments, which is like, okay, you want me to undo everything that I am being taught. I'm not going to undo what my parents taught me, but I'm going to undo now what everything that you've taught me, right? So is that the outcome? So part of it is that there's environments where this works beautifully because the, the you know, all of the pieces line up. Fabulous. That's great. That's a lot of what we think critically. And that's where I think to the work of another colleague of mine, Francesca Tripodi. She was trying to understand how just major conservative narratives were being interpreted in, and particularly things that were arguably inaccurate, uh, or you know, where there was data showing they were inaccurate, were being interpreted in Christian evangelical communities. And she chose Christian evangelical communities because their of their resistance and and dismay over um, uh, major mainstream media um, and the likelihood with which they would call CNN fake news. So she was going in and talking to all of these folks who saw CNN as fake news, being like, how do you make sense of it? And one of the most enlightening moments for her, the sort of 
you know, eye-opening, whoa, moments for her was sitting down in a series of Bible studies in Virginia where people would, you know, come together as they did every week, and they would choose a passage from the Bible that, you know, for, in a variety of different ways, and they would choose to read it. And they would discuss it, and they would analyze it. And it was, for all intents and purposes, a brilliant example of media literacy. It was, it was truly looking mm-hmm. at a media artifact, the Bible, and engaging in a literacy practice, trying to make sense of the meaning of this ancient text. And then they would go and spend the same time together in the same groups and start to apply to Trump's speeches to the Constitution, to the tax reform bill. And they would apply the same set of techniques. And what you would find is that these groups who were using this skill, the skill of media literacy and applying it to, say, the tax reform bill, were achieving a fundamentally different set of understandings of what that tax reform bill said than somebody who would be applying the media literacy techniques that that Renee and her, her colleagues actually espouse. Now, which one is right and which one is wrong, right? Now, obviously, I have a political stance. I can have an opinion that goes based on this. But both of them are actually trying to make meaning out of text. And then you end up seeing, and this is more work by Francesca, how this then applies to different digital media. And she was really fascinated at this one moment in the middle of her fieldwork because um, there was a conversation about the relationship between um, the activism of uh, football players as they were um, uh, taking a knee in uh, NFL games um, during the um, anthem and the you know response by the president and other people. And what she realizes that the message that she was hearing over and over again in these communities was NFL ratings are down. NFL ratings are down, like, you know, keep resisting. And she was like, what is this? And she, at one point, she throws it into Google and she sees all of this information. So all of this material that confirms NFL ratings are down. And then she goes and she does the inverse search. She searches NFL ratings are up and gets a completely different set of information. And of course, it's Google. So they're reliant on all of this data that has been phrased in different ways. And during this period, before the things start cross-linking, they're producing two totally different worldviews. And so here's where we're at in a weird environment. How do you search for information? What information do you get access to? We're taught that, like, just don't trust, you know, you know, who's what's the money behind it, or what's the or or you know, what's the political interest behind it? But so much of it is so much more mundane than that. Some of it is simple phrasing. And we're at a moment right now where we have an entire ecosystem that we can call propaganda at scale. Everybody's playing different messages across different people. And some people are playing just to make you so you don't trust any of that information. And that's where we go back to what I think of when I talk to people who really track Ukraine. So the most powerful thing that Russian groups did in Ukraine was make it so that nobody would trust any information, that they would be so obsessed with doubting everything that they wouldn't trust anything. Yeah, I mean, you argued that in your, you did a piece on propaganda where you said that, you know, propaganda used to be getting people to believe certain things and now it's getting them to stop believing certain things or stop having faith in the, or trust in what they've always believed. And so what does that mean then for media literacy when the seeding of doubt is the goal? When the goal is to get people to just question everything and doubt things. And I think about the RT campaign, right? right? Beautiful campaign. Question more, question more, question more. That is a mantra used and to RT de- is a, the Russian television 
station, station which acts like a CNN, but is really just a state sponsored. And, you know, and it's, you know, it's complicated because they're responding, of course, to a variety of America sponsored right. media around the world that mm-hmm. we also need to take responsibility for. Algera and everything else. Yeah. No, but I, even the stuff that we put out, right? Voices of America, right? Are complicated right. in other countries. Um, you know, and I think that's where, you know, we have to acknowledge in the United States that we have been socialized into an idealism of America that this country's not always lived up to. Right. In fact, quite often hasn't. Yeah. Hence our, you know, contemporary uh, race politics um, and fight for racial justice because we don't live up by the standards that we s- try to hold elsewhere. So I put all of this together because I think that media literacy is it feels like a great panacea to a problem that is very real. But when you start to untangle it. You realize we're dealing with an epistemological war. You realize we're dealing with massive gaslighting and that, you know, the mechanisms that we've learned to build up in what we talk about as media literacy um, aren't prepared for the kinds of adversaries we're starting to see. It's prepared for a corporate adversary, right? Corporate branding exercise. It's prepared for a traditional state-sponsored activity. This is a different game. And we don't know the skills. Maybe, I, I mean, I, yeah. I'm really hopeful we I can know. develop them. I know. I mean, we used to basically, we told our students, take the red pill so that you can wake up and see through the stuff. Ironic. Now the propagandists are giving them the red pill, trying to get them to question everything. And, you know, that phrasing, of course, is far more complicated in this environment because, you know, even if you think about the fight for racial justice at this moment, the ways in which self-identified white nationalists and white supremacists have been able to pervert the rhetoric of racial justice on their own terms is terrifying, right? And we're at a point right now where the identity work that was done in different iterations from the 60s to the 90s has now been used on college campuses as a way of creating a wedge, creating division, and, you know, seeding that tribalism and hate. And I think that's where I I struggle because, you know, when I watch young people who, by their nature, are trying to figure out how they fit into this world— be targeted so successfully by people who are trying to invite them to different theories of hate, the radicalization potential. And that's where I think we all who are in the business of amplifying information have to take responsibility, whether we're talking about the tech companies or whether we're talking about the news media. And that's what's really painful to me is I don't think that we, I don't think any of us are taking responsibility for how we have supported and enabled the radicalization that we're seeing right now. I mean, and a lot of that goes, uh, harkens to a sort of a, a larger theme in your earlier work too. I mean that, you know, while people like me were out saying, look at what the evil corporations are doing with these platforms to hurt your children, you know, whether it's MTV and Sprite or whether it's Facebook and whoever's paying them for their data. And you were, you were arguing what at the time at least sounded to me like kind of a, a corporate apology of saying it's not it's not their fault um you know look at the, y- your parents you're afraid to let your kids go out they've got nowhere to go so they're going online and going into these spaces and you're not there with them look at yourself before you start pointing the finger at some you know S&P 500 conglomerate and that's where i think you know it's all that yes hand right which is to say that 
I can't let the companies off the hook in the way that I can't let capitalism off the hook. And I, and I can't do any, I, I can't disentangle the two. To me, they're completely a part of it. But to the degree that we've bought into that version of capitalism as this country, part of it is we also have to look at how these other things play out. And like, you know, to make it more concrete, I think everybody who is in the business of journalism has an ideal of journalism that they hold up and dream of. Um, I think that the realities of journalism often don't play out the way they do as, w as well as education, as well as politics, as well as any of these other sectors. And there's this amazing dynamic within the field of journalism to not even acknowledge that they are as shaped by the capitalist structure of the present as these tech players. And they are in a competing business of amplification. And that part of where the struggle right now is over who gets to amplify. And this was our resistance in 2004 and whatnot, mm. which is like, we can blog and we can challenge the news media by having these tech platforms. And at the same time, like the practice, that ideal of journalism is so essential but it's not being sustained in the way it wants. And the answer is not to just figure out how to get better ad revenue, right? Like that's not the solution to addressing journalism. And I think we're really seeing it now with the distrust of journalism. We have to sort of step back and say, what is it about information that allows us to trust or distrust it? Why is this working in certain ways? And I think about this in terms of, you know, a funny, go back to these, these questions of networks. If you don't know a journalist or know somebody who knows a journalist, you're not going to trust that institution. And this, of course, is what our uh, you know, Washington understood with regard to politics. If you don't know your representative or know someone who knows your representative, you're not going to trust government, right? right? And you know, the Constitution was very clear. We needed to apportion based on 30,000 people. We're over 700,000 in our house. So why should we trust this institution? If you don't know someone who, or know someone who knows someone in the tech industry, why would you trust it? So part of right, it is, but is the Dunbar number is only what 120 people you can know. But you that's know. why the dynamics of the graph are so interesting and important because you can see the fissures in society. If you don't know an immigrant, why would you trust them? If you don't know somebody who is gay, why would you want to support them? Right? We know this with regard to graph structures. And so this is exactly why I'm inviting you to come back and think with me about this in terms of graphs rather than just thinking about this in terms of institutions. And that goes back to even this, this you know, fear-mongering with young people, which is that if we don't support young people in building out a strategically rich graph, they will reinforce the worst of our segmented society. And that's why I've always been so anxious about how we have isolated and silenced them and we are feeling it right now. And they look around trying to find some way to belong. And one of the things that's heartbreaking for me as a, as a progressive is that, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s online, you know, it was folks like you that were picking me up online. You, you know, folks like you were talking to me. And it was like, you know, the two that were so so memorable to me was there was a, um, you know, transgender woman who, you know, held me through a whole set of conversations around gender and sexuality and really helped me think about the world. And a, you know, young deployed um, soldier who helped me understand how my narrow understanding of America was really really, really narrow. And I think about these people who held me and helped me see a different world from a very progressive lens. And now think about it. Where, when young people go online, who holds them? I can promise you it's not progressive activists. 
And that's heartbreaking because I see these young people searching for some sort of community, stumbling their way across YouTube. And I can promise you what they're finding in those comment streams is not what you or I might celebrate um, as free and open communication. They're searching for terms that they hope will give some explanation or clarity. Those terms have been corrupted in extraordinary ways, right? On, you know, if you look at YouTube and you search for, for phrases like social justice, I can promise you right. you're not getting what you want. And so then how, who's out there looking out for this next generation? Well, isn't it – aren't they more likely to find those people in their community going – talking to their social studies teacher in high school or – These are the kids who are trying to find a world beyond their home. And what they're finding right now is extremism. They're not find, like. It's because of the tool that they're using to – Connect to that outside world. And it's because all of us who are progressives have stood down and focused on creating insular, you know, brave spaces of our own internal makings. Like, we're not out there the way we once were. You know, look back to where we were 20 years ago when we were out there trying to connect to tissue. Our blogging days of a decade ago, 15 years ago, were about trying to connect anybody. We were really excited by any young people who was curious right. and lost. Right. Well, we were in the early internet culture. We were excited by newbies. Newbies would came, come on to Usenet and you'd show them how to use it. And now extremists are excited by newbies. Right. right? And that's where, that's where it's like, okay, we can blame the technology companies for having built these technologies to connect. They were the technologies that were modeled off of our behavior because we were doing the work we were doing in, at blogging in those days. Right. It was designed under that auspice, under the idea that there would be people out there connecting and, and, and bridging. And that's what made those communities so powerful. If we as a community, as a culture, as progressives aren't out there really connecting with people through these technologies, yeah, it's being perverted. But right. it doesn't get fixed by just making these technologies go away. It'll just shift. And so there's a certain amount of it that we're responsible for actually going and trying to make an intervention. And it's like, it's like even dumb things like search online for the phrase how to get laid. Okay? If you are a 15-year-old, this is probably a term that you have searched at some right. point in your life. I can promise you that what you're showing up there is not even remotely sex positive. Right? It is extremely toxically masculine in, in ways that are often very aggressive. Why? Well, my guess is that when you were trying to figure out your sexuality as a 15-year-old, you got access to somebody's Playboy, maybe a parent's. The funny thing about those Playboys is that they had all those pictures, the naughty pictures that everybody remembers them for, and they had articles. And the articles were seen as a joke. Right. The, the article, interview with Jimmy Carter was in my dad's Playboy. Right. But there were also all these sex-positive narratives that as a 15-year-old who doesn't know anything about sex, right. you encountered them all the time. Well, those are all under lock and cover on Playboy's site that you have to have a subscription for. So when you're searching and you can get to the pornographic pictures you might want, you're not seeing articles adjacent to them that actually help you make sense of a sexuality that's remotely sex positive or feminist oriented. And as a result, we end up with this environment where you search for that and you see rape culture, like hardcore, offensive, egregious, aggressive, right. violent And then you're culture. masturbating to it, doing the most classical conditioning and anchoring of these images and, you so, know, as deep as they go. So is that up to the search companies? Is that up to social? Or is it up to all of us to start making content that's actually much more sex positive so that that material can surface its way up? Because right now, there's not content out there. The best content on how to get laid is a Cosmo magazine, right? And I don't have any 
negative things to say about Cosmo in the scheme of things. But really, that's the best right, content. That's the best we can do. So like yeah. this is that moment of like, how do we actually stay step back and take control over the content and media landscape also by producing content rather than waiting it to be curated by somebody else? Right. I mean, well, that's way. part of what I'm trying to do here, you know, with Team Human, but not always to have, you know, the same thin slice of people who agree with each other. You know, it's it to engage with but that's why, you know, Michael Golbiaski at Bing refers to this concept as data voids, right? Which is like all of the places in which the available quality of content is just not there. I mean, who's making a website being, you know, starting with, um, you know, was there a Holocaust, right? That website was not made for good intentions. Right. And so, like, how do we actually also recognize that the irony of these digital environments is that they were trying to mirror and build out the things that you and I were doing in Usenet, the things that you and I were doing in the early days of blogging. And it has unquestionably become perverted, but part of it taking it back is actually also reclaiming the content space, not just expecting the technology companies to come and fix up their own algorithmic systems. Right. There really, I mean, in some sense, there is no algorithm for that. No. And it, that's... You know, at the end of the day, if there's nothing good content-wise to produce on about how to get laid, I'm not going to stop a 15-year-old from searching for it. You're not going to ban that search question. So how do you make certain that what comes up is what we as a society hope that we can see? I mean, I saw uh, Bo Burnham's movie, Eighth Grade, and I found it really hopeful. I mean, I saw it in some ways because because I'm me, I guess. I saw it as a as a response to my generation like, where I was showing these kids making YouTube videos in kind of self-destructive ways. And here's this girl who's using her, her own YouTube expression almost as an oracle, almost as a, a way of doing affirmation and so the kind of social experimentation or what-ifing in front of others to then lead a different life. I mean, it was... In some sense, I'm thinking maybe it's not we who end up creating the content for them, but, you know, we who help them create the content for each other. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think there's different ways in which it happens. I think the question is whether or not those of us who have already the tools of amplification participate in making certain that the voices that get amplified are productive. And I think that rather than just giving it to the next generation, I mean, you know, this is a place where you know, you and I have had funny disagreements over the years because, like, I think that the majority of young people are exactly fine to the culture that we've created for them, right? And we can critique the culture, we can treat the systemic element, but they are really reflecting it. And then there are folks who are really struggling. And those folks that are struggling right now can have undue impact on a whole variety of people. Mm -hmm. And so that means that we have to put a lot more into making certain that their struggle, their pain doesn't have undue harm. It means that, you know, we have to grapple with things that are at the extremes and we can point to really pos positive and really horrible stories. And the weird thing about technology is it's both and. And depending on where you are in your views of technology, you end up holding on to one version of that equation rather than actually holding on to the full range of possibilities and the complexity of that full range of possibilities. Because from my perspective, vantage point, the internet mirrors and magnifies the good, bad, and ugly, right? And what that means is that we can celebrate the good and we can try to resist the bad or the ugly, but we really have to actually recognize all of it because if it mirrors and magnifies, if it amplifies, the possibility of that ugly causing harm to the good 
is greater. And that's a lot of, I think, what we're struggling over is how do we make certain that there's not so much bleed through in that environment? So in, in one of the recent papers that you, you co-wrote, you make the distinction between uh, what we used to call bullying and kids are calling drama. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's a really interesting, uh, it's an example really of what you're, of what you're talking about here, that, that as a parent who means well for their kid, I was, no, no, you were bullied. You were victimized. I'm going to go to the guidance counselor. And, I'm gonna, and you're arguing that kids, by considering this drama, even, even though we as parents might be horrified by what one kid did to another at the, in the lunchroom uh, at the middle school, by referring it to it as drama, the kids are actually preventing themselves from falling into a victim mindset. And, you know, this is this is work from Alice Marwick and I, and I think one of the things that we struggled with is that how people define their terms really matters for what the interventions are. So let's just take that same spectrum of, of bullying and let's apply it to a different domain, a domain that actually has been fraught in the Internet for a different reason, which is the domain of sex work. So within that context, you will hear people talk about sex work by choice, sex work by circumstance, and sex work by coercion. Right? And sex work by choice is where you hear people talk about um, what it means to take a sex positive approach, what it, you know, escort culture, you know, different kinds of um, very radical feminist approaches to sex work. In the course of lands, we're talking about human trafficking, right? Now, what's interesting about both of those groups is that when the politics get hot, they both actually try to claim the full spectrum as like it can all be by choice or it's all trafficking. The vast majority of sex work is what would be historically referred to just as prostitution. It is sex work by circumstance. It is people engaged in an act of labor in order to feed their kids, in order to do a whole variety of things. And we can talk about why the circumstances are the way they are, what, you know, the lack of, of safety net, et cetera. But when you talk to people who are in um, the life in different ways, they will talk about how, you know, this is so much better than working in a factory. Or, you know, I know this sucks, but like, this is what I've got. Or like a whole variety of other explanations. And that's one of the reasons why it's a spectrum. Some of it is unquestionably closer to trafficking. Some of it is unquestionably closer to a choice where it's still circumstance. But when it politically becomes of interest to, for people to claim all of circumstance as either trafficking or, or um, uh, sex positive, you know, uh, sex work, we have a challenge. And this is the... F- fraught battles over Craigslist and Backpage because it's, it's, you know, it's deployed by businesses, it's deployed by governments, it's deployed by, you know, religious groups, it's deployed by civil society groups. And at the end of the day, no one is stepping back and saying, should we fix the fundamental problems with why we've reached a point where sex work by circumstance is so common, right? Like maybe we should be working to eradicate it as a necessary option by providing people with, oh, let's just say, you know, viable alternative, you know, uh, labor opportunities. But no, instead we're going to politically work on, on battling out the, the, the categories that happens in so many different domains. And the bullying issue is another one of them for, it's not just for young people that they need to hold on to agency. It's that 
they need to know that they've got a path forward. And if you tell them they're bullied, the only path forward is for them to go and have an adult involved. And that gives them no agency. So how do we think about where agency lies in this equation? And how do we think about when our best intentions are helpful or when our best intentions are extremely paternalistic in a damaging right. way? Right. I mean, and that's what it's funny. My daughter was taught in, in elementary school, and middle school, they do all these bullying programs, bullying, 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 bullying. So then she learns to label things. That's bullying. What she did was bullying. What he did was bullying, bullying. Then she wakes up and Trump became president, who everyone had labeled a bully. And she's like, well, now not only is everything bullying, but there's a bully for president. And I, when I read the drama versus bullying article, I was like, oh, my God, it's so much more nuanced. If she understood this as drama, then all of a sudden she's almost above the thing. Oh, look at these people involved in drama. Well, I'm just living my life. It just, it flips the whole it context. It doesn't, it doesn't. It also- I mean, it do, it can't, yeah. it, to a large extent though. And that's when I start and looking at- And to be honest at, with you, give it, give it a couple of years and she will. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, she's young. And I think that that's part of it is that those transitions are about trying to claim power when you don't feel like you have any. And that's the history of popularity in high schools in America is about trying to claim power. But it's also the history of, of, of like the contextualization of, of politics and power in the, in the realm of, of George Lakoff and, and uh, Frank Luntz and people like that. That's really all they're doing is saying, oh, no, it's not a wall. It's a fence. It's not global warming, it's climate change. That they're by changing the terms, they're trying to change the sort of the 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 on the ground context around these things. No, and I think that's that's the longstanding fight. Like, you know, uh, not to pull on a scholar too hard, but I think that I'm I've always been enamored by Manuel Castell's work. And he points out that so much of the power in society is about the ability to make the networks. Right. And that those networks of knowledge, those networks of information, the networks of flow. And that is the blessing and curse of the technology, technological systems that we've been a part of helping enable. It's also what we've seen be perverted. Right. And that's part of why power is getting contested in these environments in new ways over and over again. And that's part of what I think, you know, certainly our children are going to be reckoning with for quite some time. Well, data and society here, this is one of those fledgling networks. Yeah. And I think, you know, from my vantage point, the purpose of data and society is to make certain that we not only have grounded knowledge to deal with, you know, these hard and complex challenges, but also to make certain that we've got networks that actually can flow and, you know, shape minds and help people think about it. You know, and that's, you know, for a small organization, you know, it's a grandiose mission of trying to be like, hey, can we actually help people come together and connect around these complex issues? And connect information to decision making. With some amount of coherence. <laughs> we try. We try. <laughs> well, thank you, Dana Boyd, for all you do. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Dana Boyd, founder of the Data and Society Research Institute and author of It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teams. You can find out more about Dana's work at datasociety.net. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens. Our producer is Stephen Bartolome. Our associate producer is Luke Robert Mason, and our community manager is Josh Chaptelin. You can hear Team Human on KXRY in Portland, KSCP in Claremont, California, and online on PIPA, iTunes, SoundCloud, 
and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. Here on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.